Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Steve Hamill, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sandra Mullen, Senior Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication. Vital Talks is a project of Vital Strategies, a global public health organization that is seeking to reimagine public health towards a world where everyone is protected by an equitable and effective public health system. This year, we want to bring you along on an in-depth journey, starting with a mini-series featuring people who are daring to reimagine and do public health differently. If you would like to learn how innovators are tackling the world's biggest health problems, please hit that subscribe button and follow the stories that are changing our world for the better. This year, we are also looking for sponsors to support our Vital Talk series. If you are an organization or individual interested in supporting thoughtful discussions around advances in public health, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks@vitalstrategies.org to learn more about sponsorship. Sandy, this is the second part of our two-episode series on perspectives in health equity. At the end of the first episode, you shared some takeaways you heard. We can listen for those in this upcoming next set of interviews and the experts we talk to. Let's see if those themes resonate, and we'll check back at the end of the episode. How does that work? That sounds great, Steve. Okay, let's give a listen. I'm Linda Villarosa, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where I cover the intersection of racial justice and public health. Linda, we're so glad to have you back on our podcast. Uh, Your book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of the Nation, came out last year and is a top 10 New York Times book for 2022. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, One of the reasons I found your book so engaging is that in addition to detailing the evidence around how pervasive and damaging systemic racism is to people that have been marginalized and particularly Black people, is that it's also a story about you um, and your evolution in thinking from, you know, growing up in a Black family in white Midwestern suburbs to a health and wellness reporter and investigative journalist. And and it's a great read. And you've kind of stretched the reader back from American history and into your life and into the current day. And given that perspective, what are you hoping for in 2023 and beyond when it comes to advancing health equity? I'm really excited about the possibility of change. And some of the things I've seen that seem hopeful are um, medical students, whether it's people studying to be doctors, nurses, midwives, or even work in public policy. And I see a new generation of people coming forward who want to do things differently, who understand that discrimination and including racism is baked into the systems and institutions of our country including medical care system, and they want to do things differently and do things better. That's so powerful. And like, what could we see in the future if these kind of seeds that you're seeing being planted, you know, germinate? I think that we'll see more caring individuals going into medicine, people who are um, understand race and racism, understand that racism is a public health threat and not that there's something wrong with Black people and or something wrong with our bodies or our culture and that it's not our fault and look beyond um, individual responsibility and blame for the health outcomes, the poor health outcomes of Black people in America. 
I, I love that. That's so powerful. And I, I'd like your advice for a minute. Your, your book helps drive urgency around this topic of racism in public health. And I feel, you know, as a field, much of public health is built on these longstanding, quote unquote, you know, best practices and approaches. Um, and we're not going to be able to just tack on health equity or combating racism as a goal. Um, so some of these sort of longstanding practices were going to require reimagining or reexamining, um, and that's that's going to be tough. How do you think we can make health equity urgent and keep it in the forefront as a as a public health field? I think that the train is already out of the station as far as looking, examining racism as a public health threat. That's already happening. I think we can continue to support people who are doing it, whether it's, you know, Mary Bassett talking about um, the New York City Department of Health and requiring in the past all 7,000 employees of the New York City Health Department to undergo some kind of implicit bias or anti-racism training. We can look at the state of California, where as part of continuing medical education, people who work with, you know, in the healthcare system must go through some kind of implicit bias training. I think we can also look at the system and say, we can't use technology or clinical innovation to change what's going on. And we have to change the way we're doing things. We have to use community health workers, whether we're calling them doulas or patient navigators, to put the care back in healthcare. And I think that that's a very much overlooked part of the solution that has worked in other countries that are much poorer than ours. Thank you for that. And lastly, you know, racism in health is such a tough issue to examine all the time. There's so many barriers to progress. You're exhuming these very distressing stories. And I'm wondering what inspires you? What keeps you at it? What gets you up out of bed? And, you know, we, we've just heard the positivity in voice. How do you maintain that? Well, I think much of this is personal to my own life, and I've seen a lot, but I'm kind of a happy person that looks at sad issues. Um, and I really believe in the power of change. I believe that if we encourage and lift up people who are doing the work and who are thinking about these things, that is how we can continue to progress forward. But I think getting stuck in negativity is just getting stuck, and it doesn't help. So I tend to look at the glass half very full and think that we can do better in the future. Linda, thank you so much for being on our podcast again and for sharing your view of health equity in 2023 and beyond. Thank you, and I appreciate the work you are doing yourself. My name is Lola Adedokin, and I'm the Executive Director of the Aspen Global Innovators Group. Welcome, Lola. Uh, the Aspen Global Innovators Group brings voices from the global south into global development, and that includes convening the brightest minds from social enterprise and government, foundations, private sector corporations, to address issues that are identified as important by the people who are living in these very communities that seek to be impacted. And I know this initiative touches a wide variety of topics uh, that affect people's lives and health. What do you see emerging as potentially important advances in health equity in 2023 and beyond? Oh, what I find most exciting emerging now is a prioritization of those who are most proximate to the challenges and health inequalities that we know to be true are actually being identified as leaders of the solutions um, and sort of transforming systems. So it's really exciting to see 
that local leaders are actually seen as valuable voices and valuable contributors to the solutions, um, to the problems around them. That's exciting. And we've heard some very similar themes from some of our other uh, discussants. And can you paint a picture? What does that look like in real life? Wow. In real life, if you're a funder, for example, one has to take the time, effort, and energy to go to communities, to listen to different types of community leaders. This doesn't mean just speaking to the head of the Department of Health, but actually speaking to a grandmother, speaking to a father, speaking to someone who, a homeless person, understanding the lived experience of those who are day in, day out in the community, and then thinking about transformation, innovation, and interventions that could work. I think finally, other addition to that is this takes more time um, and being patient for the time it takes to suss out priority challenges, to understand the issues and the experience locally, um, one has to embed that in the solution building. I think that's another theme, this issue of um, both listening and taking your time, that speed can be a force for inequity, um, you know, is another theme that's emerging. And I think, you know, it's so interesting. You really bring together people from very diverse sectors to solve these really seemingly intractable problems. And what do you think brings these different perspectives to the table and how can we keep them there? You know, health equity is having this moment, um, but how can we make sure that we keep the momentum and keep this central to our work? I think first and foremost, um, you know, respecting people's time and holding everyone accountable to solutions. I think that um, this is hard work. We are all emerging from uh, the trauma um, of a pandemic that's, again, reinforced the fact that addressing health equity is not an option. It's a must-do, must-have. Um, however, we have to recognize that these are the same people who are still dealing with the trauma of the experience. And so it takes um, a need for just a more empathetic approach to keeping them at the table. That will ensure that their voices are valued and that we understand um, what is happening and the fact that you know, when you ask people to rise to another occasion and to advance an agenda that benefits everyone, and yet you're calling on the people of color, a lot of people of color, um, who have been disproportionately disadvantaged in this pandemic, to then rise up and be the solution leaders. Um, empathy is key. And moreover, paying people for their time and for their expertise and wisdom is crucial. And then providing access to all the privileged platforms that many of us have access to and positioning those leaders at the center of the conversation um, and not translating in any way and letting them lead. I think those are all really helpful incentives. Um, and, and the final thing I would say is when things don't work and when partners don't deliver, being ready to name that things didn't work um, and being truthful about that and then adapting and evolving um, keeps people thinking that there's a possibility there. That's really fascinating. And, you know, as somebody who also works in the global health space, sometimes global health or quote unquote development work can seem so remote, right? Like we're used to projects, you know, wanting to uplift people to change people's lives. And sometimes it feels like we're, you know, 
fighting for, you know, the change in the World Health Organization analysis report, you know, some percentage of people are living longer lives or dallies, you know, these somewhat abstract metrics that that do boil down to people's lives, but maybe don't have the emotional impact. You know, how do you make this work more real for yourself? You know, and, you know, how do you stay inspired to keep at this? Oh, well, I have the privilege of working with leaders from around the globe. And one point I like to make clear is uh, that includes the U.S. So it's exciting to see leaders from high-income countries, though they are working in low-resource settings, learn from folks who have been endeavoring in low-resource settings for decades. Um, I also think that, you know, when you when you're in a neighborhood and you see that there is a sense of a social fabric and a sense of optimism in light of all the metrics that we see about a neighborhood and the story that's being told about where they live, that's what I find inspiring, seeing the difference between what we hear about and what we know is possible and hopeful about a neighborhood. So I love, you know, we've had the privilege of investing in storytelling and narrative change for leaders and, you know, pushing back against these dishonest stories about community and hearing the truth and the facts and the hope and hearing from kids and the different generations of experience. So that keeps me engaged and those leaders keep me excited. They hold me accountable every day um, to use our space. And so it's, it's really been a, a thrill and it's incredibly reinforcing um, to work with brilliant minds. Lola Adedokan, I want to thank you for bringing your perspective and the work of the Aspen Global Innovators Group into this podcast and share another perspective on health equity in 2023 and beyond. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. My name is Carol Magruder, and I am one of the co-chairs of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. And good morning. I'm Dr. Philip Gardner. I'm one of the co-chairs of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Carol and Phil, welcome. And since 2008, the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council has been leading the fight to keep big tobacco from targeting Black people in the U.S. And this has meant winning protections at all levels, from cities like Chicago to states like California, and up through the U.S. FDA's announced intention last year to ban all menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars which could save 6,000 Black lives a year. We also appreciated that you co-authored with us the new chapter on equity in the Tobacco Atlas and helped bring those lessons global. So with that perspective, what are you hoping to see in 2023 that can advance health equity and into the future? I would love to start. Um, as, after we get off of this call, we're going to have our own planning meeting as we look forward to 2023. And for me personally, I am um, in a place of gratitude. I'm in a place of wonder that we have been able to stick together and accomplish what we have. And we have a long way to go, um, but that we have been able to stick together and accomplish so many things, especially this year. So many, so much of our the hard work that we've started in 2008 and before that, we've seen uh, the beginning of this giant buckling a little. And so, and we know we have to keep going, but we're just grateful um, that uh, what we've accomplished, which are the things that you've said. <laughs> and Phil, would you like to build on that? Let's be clear. We've had some major victories, but the fight is a long way from over. Um, and we're going to have to, 
I thought about in 2023, um, the FDA is stalling. They um, went to the Supreme Court here in California. They're trying to block it in Ohio. This is, we need to buckle up and get, you know, and, and be prepared. It also, I guess the opportunity, and this will come up in some other questions, the opportunity um, is that we're in a position to try and make this part and parcel of the fight for health equity. I think it's on the tobacco control folks to link up with these other issues that we face here in the United States, not to mention in the world. Um, and we're going to try and do a little bit more of that this year. That's great. And I'm also curious about the link that you see between the momentum you've had over the last year and the years prior to the sort of larger movement towards health equity and the reckoning around racial justice, particularly sparked by the murder of George Floyd. And I know your work on menthol and on saving black lives has been a long time coming, as we spoke about. Um, do you think that there was additional pressure to act? You know, will that momentum remain? Um, what's your reaction? I think that the momentum is building, and I think it will remain. And and both Phil and I were both old enough to know and have lived long enough that, to know that, you know, you're the flavor of the day for a couple of years, and then it's on to something else. And that's one of the reasons I think we have worked so hard to keep our momentum going and not to relax and think um, that it's over. I just came back from a public health immersion course in Cuba. And uh, so I got a chance to see the different layers of public health there and how it works to support the community. And it really highlighted to me how our fight has not only been with the tobacco industry, which I knew that, but it's also been with our own public health brothers and sisters and entities that are supposed to be supporting the work that we do. And so half of our energy has been spent, you know, a third has been spent dealing with the public health structures, dealing with the tobacco industry, and then dealing with our own people. Um, so for the first time, really, in this fight, I'm feeling more supported, more respected, more um, honored for our fight and our knowledge of, of this fight in our community than ever before. And so I'm looking forward to, as we go into 2023, at least I feel more in lockstep with my own public health colleagues and collaborators and funders. <laughs> And Phil, I mean, this sort of touches on what you were saying. I mean, I mean, you know, my my perception, it sounds like you're building, is that this kind of rights and justice-based approach to health was, you know, a backwater for a long time, but now it's kind of gaining steam. You know, too often public health has sort of looked at this, you know, population-based approach based on, you know, that overlooks disparities and potential solutions. And you've been championing this for decades. So, you know, what advice or what way forward do you think we need to take to make sure that the whole community is buying into this equity-based approach within public health? And how do we link up with the within public health and within the larger equity movement? Well, I would even I would I would take it even a step further. Um, I appreciate Carol's comments about our colleagues in the field of public health and the work we still need to do there and will continue to need to do there. But when I look around, um, and one thing we're going to talk about later today, our work as getting tobacco control and the health disparities associated with it, 
making this a question that the Black Mayors Conference takes up, making this a question that is on the agenda of the um, Congressional Black Caucus, not just having a booth there like we had last night, but actually speaking there, making this a question among our black fraternities and sororities, um, getting this to be, and, and, and I want to put it, it's not on them, it's on us. We're the ones trying, you know, trying to push this. So we need, we need to um, be getting the, the Black Nurses Association and on and on. So I, I think we, you know, we reach very high. Um, we're a very small group. Um, we could use all the money we could get. Um, but I think to get our message out on the health disparities that are associated with smoking and how, you know, let's just be frank, the main killer of black folks is tobacco and the main vector into our community are menthol cigarettes and flavored little cigars. It's been that way for decades. Um, if we could get that message to others in our community, the synergy would be great. Um, and so we're going to work on that a little We've heard this like a theme we've heard across a number of different folks, maybe unsurprisingly, is how does public health make connections with communities that exist in the lives of, you know, of those folks we want to impact? How do we engage and empower them and make this more movement? And I'm curious if you think there are, you know, what are the messages? What are the, uh, you know, how do we inspire that kind of collaboration and engagement? What's worked for you? Because you're clearly doing something right. I think that what's worked for us the most is that uh, we both, Phil and I, and Dr. Valerie Yerger and other members of our council, we were activists before we <laughs> took on tobacco. And so we really bring a very different kind of fight than your typical politically cor correct, um, you know, every word dice correctly public health community, which I love them, and we need we need both of us. But I think that we are street fighters <laughs> um, who manage to get inside, and we bring that to the table, and that our people, that resonates with them. And so as I'm aging, we're, we're aging up now, and we need other messengers now who, who reach our people, who reach the brother who's on the corner, who's the main person who we're trying to help and save. Um, so some of this messaging and some of the ways that we say things, we're going to have to change it a little bit because it's a, it's a new stage in this fight. And we really want our community, especially the community, our urban community, to really know that this is about them and that if you don't have health, you can have, be the richest person in the world it's not about money. The first thing is health and that this industry has robbed us of that. Um, and that when we talk about health equity, we need to talk about reparations and we need health reparations. And so we need our the public health to focus as much energy in a positive way as the negative and racist targeting that we receive for these decades with very little assistance from anybody. Well, Phil and Carol, um, I, well, I want to invite our listeners to go to savingblacklives.org and meet the council. There's a great page that shows each of them and to learn about your work, including the activist spirit um, you can see in your work that really is about engaging in the fight in, and in the community. Um, and I know that in our work together, I loved how you bring together technical smarts and heart and passion um, into what you do. And, and I think that that's at the core of, 
um, what's going to keep health equity at the fore. Thank you for taking a few minutes for us today to share your perspective and the AATCLC perspective <laughs> on health equity uh, for 2023 and beyond. Sandy, now we've heard seven different perspectives on health equity, and I found them really illuminating. And I wanted to start our conversation by sharing that I'm leaving these set of interviews surprisingly hopeful. Uh, you know, I think equity is such a big topic, and there's so far to travel before we have health equity. I, I personally sometimes feel overwhelmed. You know, Keisha Harris in the first episode, her comment about putting your own role and progress into perspective still sticks out to me after these interviews and also being reminded that Linda Villarosa, who's such an important journalist in this field, is where she is because she's had this journey and this evolution. Mm -hmm. That was great mm -hmm. for me personally. And, you know, it reminded me that we can't change this moment immediately, that, you know, as a field and practitioners, that momentum is really what's important. And we have a lot to relearn um, and how to create public health with greater equity. What about you? How are you feeling at the end of these two episodes? Yeah, I feel, you know, I think that the, you know, there are a couple of people that we talked to or who spoke in these episodes who are actually doing work. They are mm -hmm. committing themselves to uh, a, a topic in the form of tobacco control with Carol Magruder and Phil Gardner. I mean, they're literally taking on an issue that is a leading killer of black people and putting their all their efforts behind it. And, and I really respect when people become activists and really uh, committed to an issue. So they are really walking the talk uh, on what needs to be done. And uh, I think Lola Adedokan really added a great perspective, sort of echoing Nina Prasad in the first series uh, about the importance of letting local leaders lead, which is really a form of anti-colonialism and bringing technical know-how that essentially is shared um, with local experts rather than mm -hmm. imposed from a north-south uh, in a north-south way. And and I think you know I was surprised by the optimism that Linda Vierosa uh, put forward um, because she's been in the trenches. She's just written a book that really illuminates the way in which black bodies have been seen as inferior to white bodies for centuries. And yet, uh, I think has put her faith in some of the solutions to uh, fighting against institutional racism. And I think that her optimism is infectious. And I feel that the problems are, are really deep and trenchant, but I will try to take a little bit of optimism, um, thanks to Linda, and, and use it to infuse and invigorate the work that we do here at Vital Strategies. Yeah, I was feeling that too. And like, like you, I was struck by, you know, Carol and Phil from African American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. And they've been doing this work before it had a label, maybe, you know, for, and mm -hmm, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're activists with the public health, you know, moniker. They really have that, mm -hmm. that hunger for change and urgency for change that yeah. really infuses their work. That passion really felt to me. I was also wondering if you, Ha heard anything that you've had 
technical connotations in terms of how we approach that work. I mean, I heard something which I think you touched upon already, which is the importance of, you know, bringing ownership of the communities who Mm -hmm. are feeling the impact into the work and co-creating programs and initiatives with the people and who making are, space at the table for for yep. you know shifting power imbalances which are you know where which we have participated in in public health and and I think that is something that has to change um, so each speaker found a way of of calling that out and really um, I feel honored to have been a part of this series one maybe concern I have as you know that maybe could be explored deeper is this need to align with other movements, human rights, labor, housing. And one concern I had, you know, was, you know, how can we create kinship with this movement? You know, I can count on one hand the number of conference presentations or program work plans that -hmm. have mentioned allying with labor groups or, you know, uh, or or public housing groups and, you know, to, to address the kind of social determinants and inequities. And yet it seems like we all acknowledge this as a huge thing. So I guess one of the things I'm hoping that we can find in future interviews is some groups that are really taking this kind of integrated whole person, whole life approach. And I look at what what we could learn from that. I guess one of the things I've been reflecting on as someone who's been working global health for a long time is when we are addressing issues like tobacco control or obesity prevention or air pollution or any other public health issue in any country that we work in, there are so many underlying issues to so many of the issues that we're addressing. Poverty, uh, food insecurity, insufficient education, um, political turmoil. So many of those issues undergird many of the public health issues that we we address and yet we're not we're not necessarily able to address those by ourselves but if we think in a much more intersectoral way and think about multiple groups that can join in this conversation and and really think about addressing things at their root causes and really join us in a, a really awake movement around addressing public health much more deeply i think we'd all be much stronger for it and I also think that there's opportunity there. I mean, we're both communications professionals, and our job is to make people care about public health and make public health salient. And I often think about the average person isn't thinking about health, but they are thinking yeah. about what dominates their everyday life, what's fair, what's unfair. They don't have you know, different domains, but they are thinking about, are they feeding their kids you know, or, or, you know, do they have safe housing? You know, is the political system there under fair and connecting health to those issues actually provides the opportunity Mm -hmm. for us to bring the public in and and care about what, you know, but about health outcomes as well. Um, I was also left thinking about power. And in the course of these interviews, We've also learned about groups that are launching new paradigms, like a South-to-South Development Fund. Another group we heard about is leaning into community organizing and mutual aid among people who've been made marginalized. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm hoping to pull those folks into the next few interviews of Vital Talks and and learn from their experiences. Any concluding thoughts from you? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think this again, thinking about we we need to keep thinking about about health equity in so many so many different dimensions of it, and make sure that it's not an add on to our work, but it's really embedded in how we do our work. And I mean, we at Vital, I mean, we in public health. Uh, so that it's really at the core and at the heart of how we even think about what we're doing. And we we need to think about power and unequal power relationships and how we can address those. And, and, you know, it's, it's a tall order. There's a lot to do, but uh, I think uh, having these conversations only pushes certainly my commitment forward. Sandy, thanks for joining me on these two. And I'm looking forward to our next set of uh, interviews with other experts on adjacent topics. Listeners, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast service. Also, visit us at vitalstrategies.org and subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can sign up for news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests like NCD prevention, urban health, environmental health, health equity, and much more. If you have feedback or thoughts, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill and Sandy Mullen, signing off for the Vital Talks podcast.